This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community. For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest today from MacDill Air Force Base is Father Eric Albertson, chaplain at MacDill. Good morning, Father. Good morning. So, Father, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been in the military for a whole long time, and you've also been a Catholic priest for a long time as well. Tell us about your upbringing and everything else. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on with you today, Deacon Mike. And it's a a great joy to be with you. I uh, grew up in Northern Virginia, the son of a Creole military officer. So I was actually born in Germany, and then my family came to the United States and actually served in uh, the Vietnam War, and for the most part grew up in Northern Virginia. Graduated Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria, and then went on to West Virginia University to get a degree in business. And while I was at West Virginia, I discerned the call to the priesthood and was accepted by the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, and signed to Mount St. Mary's Seminary, where I graduated in 1986. So yes, it has been a, a long time. I just crossed 37 years in the priesthood, and next month I'll cross 30 years in the Army. How does that work? You were a priest before you joined the Army. How does it work with a diocese? Do you have to have a bishop's permission? That's correct. It's changed a little bit. When I first came in, the way it worked was if you felt called to the military, which is kind of like a calling within a calling. So with my background, having grown up as a military brat, as they call us, (laughs) I felt attracted to the military, but I kind of put it aside as I entered into the priesthood. But about a year after ordination, I felt the call to return to the military because I had been an ROTC in college, but I was never commissioned. So I spoke with the bishop. And back then, the bishop just had to be in favor of you going on a special assignment. So there are no priests organic to the military archdiocese. We're all on loan. And it begins with the bishop granting permission to serve in the military. That began the direction. And I ended up petitioning seven years in a row. And finally, the bishop did release me. And uh, I was picked up by the army and the military archdiocese accepted me. And I think the rest is, is history. Now they have what's called the co-sponsorship program. So if a young man feels called to the priesthood and to the chaplaincy, he can approach the military archdiocese and they will assign him to a diocese that works with them. Bottom line is that the military archdiocese will pick up half of the seminary costs. They split it with the diocese. The diocese gives the young priest several years of experience. Then the bishop and the archbishop for the military will agree on when the individual is going to go active and then they come into the military. And that way, an individual has a trajectory and a, a definitive glide path towards serving in the military as a chaplain. We're still on loan. So when I retire, I will return to the Diocese of Arlington and finish up my time. I think retirement still 75 on canon law. So I'll have another decade left in the diocese when I retire from the military. In addition to the title of father, you also have the title of colonel. That's correct. But One of the things that's unique about the chaplain corps, and there are several, one is that, you know, we're non-combatants, so we don't carry a weapon. We have a lot of security around us when we're in the forward areas. And typically, our religious affairs specialists, they used to be called chaplain assistants, but they're basically the enlisted personnel that works with us and helps us to accomplish the religious support mission. But in a forward area, they also have the additional duty of providing security for us. But the other pieces were not addressed by our rank, regardless of our rank. Even the two-star chief of chaplains 
is addressed as chaplain. So it's kind of a neat dynamic associated with serving in this capacity. Now, sometimes the medics will often be called doc, but for the most part, the chaplain, at least uh, doctrinally, our formal title is chaplain. You started out in the Army at Fort Bragg? That's correct. So I was very lucky. Uh, When I was in college, I was able to go to the Airborne School, and so I didn't have to go again. I was already what they call jump qualified, so that slotted me to go to the 82nd Airborne Division. And so I started out there. I ended up doing about four years there and deployed one time with them to the mission in Haiti. It was not a combat mission, but it was a security and UN mission at the same time. But it was a great uh, place to be and a wonderful place to start out. When you say you were jump qualified? That means you're a paratrooper. So you get a special badge. It's got a set of wings with a parachute in the middle. You have jumped out of a perfectly good working airplane (laughs) on purpose? Yes. Although we always joke because sometimes the planes are quite rattly. We're like, I don't know if they're perfectly good. (laughs) Might be good to to jump out of this thing. But just the same, that's always the joke. Yes, there's something wrong with us. We, We like exiting these aircraft. What was your first jump like? Were your knees knocking? Well, you're quite nervous, but they do a number of rehearsals and they train you up for it. And there's a certain degree of excitement. I mean, people still skydive today just for the fun of it. But these are what they call static line exits. So there's a cord attached to the parachute. So you only have about four seconds of free falling. And then the parachute opens and then you just have to make sure you land safely. But there's a certain excitement to it. It can become a little bit unpleasant when you're carrying a lot of equipment. So uh, then you're uncomfortable until you're outside the door and you release your equipment and then you land. It would be much more unpleasant if I were with you because I would be screaming the entire way. (laughs) Good for you for doing that. When was the last time you've actually parachuted like that? Well, it's been a number of years. I unfortunately injured my ankle while I was deployed. So that took me off of a jump status for probably the past few decades. So really haven't jumped since I was with the 82nd. One of the things that's kind of interesting about The paratroopers have always been a rambunctious part of the army. They're a double volunteer, so they volunteer to serve, and you have to be a volunteer to go to the jump school and serve in an airborne unit. They're very young, and a lot of them got tattoos, and they're just a wild, rambunctious crowd. But in all reality, there's always some risk every time you exit the aircraft. So the associated risk has a bonding effect with all the paratroopers. So when they see the chaplain jumping with them, that adds to it. And then if I wasn't crazy enough, I went to the advanced airborne school, which teaches you how to be a jump master. And then you inspect the equipment and make sure everybody's equipment is just right. And you actually have some leadership responsibilities inside the aircraft to make sure everybody gets out the door safely. And then the jump master exits last. So that's a great way to establish rapport. And the fact that the chaplain is jumping with them kind of puts you in the club So it adds to the bonding that we experience with these young service members and paratroopers who have uh, chosen to serve their country in this capacity. So it it adds to the pastoral sense of fulfillment and reward. And those strong bonds with the military members probably help them to open up a little more to you, right? It does. When you're kind of in the club, so to speak, it gives you kind of a foot in the door. And it really ties in with kind of a unique aspect to the chaplaincy regardless of denomination, it's a different kind of way to provide ministry. So we wear their uniform, we train with them, we deploy with them. In the airborne community, we share their risks. And in a forward area, you know, you're sharing risks as well. Although we're not out where the exact fighting is, 
with these recent conflicts, you can tend to be kind of close to it and sometimes even come under fire yourself. So the willingness to share those risks is something that helps to bring you closer to the troops. And sometimes the troops can be a little bit calloused, so they can be a tough crowd to reach. But because you're in there with them, it opens up the door for communication because you've already established that rapport, that relationship. So if they're having some difficulties, they're more likely to come to you because they know you, they're familiar with you, and they trust you because you were willing to endure the same hardships that they have. How often do you see members of the military who have some sort of PTSD? Well, in recent years, not as much, but through the duration of the war, quite frequently. But guys will still trickle in coping with some of their combat experiences. The PTSD is actually a diagnosed condition. So if they genuinely have it, they've been in with the psychiatric community to help them uh, to cope with it. And the chaplain is often part of the care team. So we kind of have a holistic approach to care of the service member and the spirituality is in their spiritual care and the pastoral care is a part of that. You've been to a lot of places around the world as a chaplain. Can you tell us some of those places and are there places that you can't talk about? No, most of my work is unclassified. Now I'm in a position where I have a very high security clearance, but I've not been involved with like top secret missions. So my work when I was deployed was with conventional forces. I served four tours in Korea and I was in Bosnia for a year. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I'd been to Haiti. I'd served in Kuwait and Qatar. I did uh, two tours in Iraq and two tours in Afghanistan. And then when I was with Central Command a few years ago, I was forward almost a whole year while I was with them. But the most exotic and most rewarding was when I was assigned to Italy. So a priest in Italy is like a nice package. I was assigned to Vicenza. We have an airborne unit there. And I was the Southern European Task Force chaplain. It's basically the quick reaction force for Europe. If something should flare up, the airborne brigade there would deploy. And I was privileged to be there. It was great. I got to go down to Rome a few times, went to Padua. I traveled to Venice, and there's a lot to see right there in Vicenza. We're talking with Father Eric Albertson, one of the chaplains at MacDill. So, Father, talk about your service in the Middle East. Obviously, in a combat area, your job as a chaplain must have been really needed, and you probably experienced some horrific things, I would imagine, right? My first tour in particular, but every tour I went over, there was a lot of fighting and tragically a lot of casualties and a lot of pastoral care associated with that. I felt very privileged. I came in at the tail end of the Gulf War. So I joined in 1993, and I didn't go to the Gulf War, but everybody around me did. I was one of the new kids on the block, so I didn't have anything on my uniform. But I trained hard for the next 10 years. I spent some time with a series of units. So when the war broke out, I had about 10 or 11 years of training under my belt. So I felt very privileged. I had quite a few years of experience. I was in my mid-40s. I was older and more mature. And I think that helped me to have my head screwed on straight. But I was always reminded that most of the guys that were deployed were much younger in their early 20s, most of our infantry. The hardest part was the mission was ongoing, and they were typically on a three-day cycle. So there was one day where they would refit, then one day where they would plan their mission for the day, and then on day three, they would execute their, their mission. Then they would come back in 
and the cycle would start all over again. Sometimes they were out of, we call it out of sector, but outside of the, the secure area, it's kind of a distinction. I'll give it a little vocabulary here. So typically your forward areas are surrounded by several layers of concertina wire. So they call these the FOBs, the forward operating bases. And most of the missions are conducted out in these other areas. So they'll call it out of sector, which is to be distinct from the sector that you're currently in. And they'll also say outside the wire, which means you're going outside of the security of the FOB. These guys sometimes were outside the wire, out of sector, conducting missions for several days at a time. Then they might come in and that cycle would be a little bit stretched out. But it was ongoing. And the fatigue factor and the grief factor was the hardest because, as we mentioned earlier, when I was with the paratroopers, you get very close. Well, close quarters fighting with the infantry brings a particular bonding with those fellows as well. And now we have you know females in the infantry too, but back then they weren't in the infantry. But it brings a certain camaraderie and closeness. If somebody gets hurt or killed or badly wounded, it's very hard on the unit. So the role of the chaplain takes on an added significance and importance because you're helping them to cope with their grief, but you're also helping them to be resilient and also to refocus because the mission is ongoing. They have to go back out there and conduct missions. So it's an important role, and that, I think, though, was the most challenging. And not only that, it affects the chaplain personally because some of these guys you know, and it hurts on a personal level to see guys badly wounded or, or killed. Who does the chaplain go to for help? You know, it was interesting. I was at an event recently, and that was the very question someone asked. One of the things, now, granted, if it falls in the category of, you know, some psychological, psychiatric issues, we'll turn to the mental health professionals. But generally speaking, the chaplains police their own. So we're always checking on each other. One of my duties was supervising some subordinate chaplains, and I go out sometimes to these combat outposts where these were very isolated smaller base camps away from the FOB, they were a little more exposed. So when I would get out there, and these places often saw the most casualties, the chaplain was the only show in town. So I would get out there, and a lot of times the chaplains were quite exhausted. So I always remembered, and I had to budget for this time-wise, that half my time spent at these outposts was with the chaplain and his NCO now, sometimes the uh, religious affairs specialists, they kind of police each other too. So we tag team to make sure that they had an opportunity to talk out their experiences and decompress a little bit. I realized that that was part of the mission. I had to get out there not only to facilitate pastoral care for the troops, but, and of course, in my case, to provide Catholic coverage, but also to spend some time with the chaplain that was out there that may be struggling. And so conversely, one of the things that we're always vigilant on is if we see a chaplain isolating and not spending time with one of the other chaplains or talking things out. So that's kind of how we work it. And just like there's a camaraderie among the infantry because of the shared risk and the unique mission, there's also a great camaraderie within the chaplain corps. So this has been kind of one of my wonderful experiences being a chaplain. You get to know Protestant chaplains. You get to know rabbis. The current command chaplain for Central Command also co-located on MacDill, is an imam, so a Muslim chaplain. And I've known him for a number of years, and we're good friends. And there was a prayer breakfast we had one time when we were in Kuwait, and he was there, I was there, we had a rabbi there, there was uh, 
It sounds like a joke. Yeah, it does. You know, they, <laughs> so, mom, a Catholic priest, and all a- walked into a <laughs> prayer breakfast, I guess. So, and we all, as the prayer breakfast was over, we all sat down and had our breakfast afterwards. And people commented that how close we were and how we were sharing experiences and just enjoying the company. Actually, someone once asked me, "Well, why do you think that? So, what? Why do you think there's so much closeness on the chaplain corps?" Well, partly because our mission is very unique. And so the unique nature of the mission in that we're focusing on the spiritual needs of the troop and their religious support. So that's different from everybody else. And of course, it has some unique denominational differences as well. But the common bond that unites us is the love for the service member. Now, I'm an army, so we'd say the love for the soldier, but I'm in the joint world now. So the love for the sailor, the love for the airman, the love for the marine. We have a tremendous love and devotion to the service members that we provide pastoral care to, so much so that we're willing to put our life on the line to go out and meet those spiritual needs. And as a consequence, it bonds the chaplains together pretty closely. So every time we're together, we it's like a big reunion. We all get caught up and enjoy each other's company. And even if I run into a chaplain that I haven't seen in a decade, we pick it up where we left off. It's like we've been as close as we've ever been. So that's a particular joy that I've experienced in the Chaplain Corps over the years. We're talking with Father Eric Albertson from MacDill Air Force Base, the chaplain at MacDill. Father, you mentioned before about putting your own life on the line, and you are the recipient of some major awards. Can you tell us about the Bronze Star and what are the oak leaf clusters? If you get an award a second time, then they put a little oak leaf emblem on the medal. So... It sounds bigger than it is, but you can get the Bronze Star for valor. That means you were on the battlefield and you did something valorous that was seen by your peers and leadership. And then after the battle's over, they'll decorate you. But it can also be for a service in a forward area. So I've had four tours, so I ended up getting four Bronze Stars. But the criterion for the Bronze Star medal pretty much was always the same. It was a scope of responsibility, so you you had to have a fairly large and important job. Then the second was the exposure to risk. A lot of the discretion was up to the commander, but in my case, I was frequently outside the wire, so the exposure to risk didn't really matter. And then also your position, what your assignment actually was. So I did get a number of those, and then did get the Purple Heart. You don't really earn that. They grant it to you if you're wounded. So one of the convoys I was in, it was just routine trip out to one of the combat outposts, and we just got ambushed. And so the guys returned fire, the vehicles, several of them were hit. Our vehicle got blown up, and it gave me a concussion. I kind of snapped out of it quickly, but I had some problems. So they just had me rest up in the aid station for 24 hours for observation. But it took out my hearing for a little bit, and then... I had some nausea and it knocked me out. So, and actually I recently, uh, I never did the follow-up on that because I kept getting moved. So recently they wanted to follow up with that, even though it was a couple decades later. But on the CAT scan, they were able to see where the injury had occurred, interior wound of the brain, so to speak. So there had been some bleeding and hemorrhaging, but it all cleared up. They can still tell that something happened years ago. Right. Yeah, they they were able to validate that. And so they were concerned about some other things, but that was what led to that, the CAT scan getting done. Was that in Iraq? 
that was in Iraq, my first tour. Yeah, we just had a, a lot of wounded. When the news about your injury hit your family, what was their reaction? Well, I didn't know that they found out. So we have communications on the battlefield today that were unimaginable years ago. But early on in the fight, we didn't. So I didn't know my family had found out about it. So my mom was kind of uh, scrambled and worried. But, but they told her I was fine. And then when I came home for R&R, that's when she told me that she'd received word. I mean, I was very blessed. The only thing that happened was I uh, got knocked out. The vehicle almost rolled. Uh, the guys behind us said we went up on two wheels. <laughs> and then it came back down. But yeah, it was a, definitely a close call. Did you have a helmet on? Yeah, we had the helmet on. But I think it's the nature of the explosion is so sudden. It's more of like a whiplash thing where your your brain gets joggled. and I, I guess so. I, I must have hit the ceiling or something, you know, or maybe when we came down, the vehicle slammed back down, uh, bounced around a bit. I think when the explosion hit the vehicle, the whole vehicle was shoved up in the air so rapidly. I think that that's what happened. Wow. Father, as a chaplain, what would you say are the biggest issues that the men and women of the armed forces are struggling with today? My experience has been the morale is very high. I think there is some concern about another conflict. So that's an undercurrent. You know, is the situation in China going to flare up? Is the situation in the Ukraine going to spill over and require another series of deployments? So I think that's one of the big ones. But overall, and and I, I can't speak for the entire force, but I have a fair amount of exposure. Even throughout the war, one of the things that always startled me was just how high the morale was. Even towards the end of the war, people still had their head in the game. They were still very serious. They were still very motivated. And it sounds bizarre, but cheerful. You know, there was a sense of commitment and a belief in the mission and an understanding of the importance of what they were doing. So, so much so that it's a weird paradox. Some interesting counselings I've had in recent years is individuals miss being deployed. Not that they liked being away from their family or they're bored out of their gourd right now or something like that. It's more of a camaraderie. But the camaraderie and also the, the sense of one fellow said, I'd much rather be doing than training to do. So they liked the real world nature of the mission, the importance of it. And most people that have served in the forward areas have shared that there's just not a lot of room for nonsense and petty issues and concerns. There's just not time for it. So it streamlines the ability to focus on the mission and the importance of what is at hand because these are life-death missions that these guys go on. And so that stark reality gives a degree of importance and punch to what a service member is doing. I think in some ways I can relate to them because even myself, my most rewarding pastoral experiences were in the forward areas. And I did enjoy being with the troops during that time. Not that I haven't enjoyed being with them in garrison or in my other assignments, but there was just a particular sense of pastoral fulfillment associated being forward. Father, how can the average listener help the men and women of our armed forces? When we were deployed, that was never an issue. One of the things that I was always touched by, we would receive these care packages, wonderful care packages that have all sorts of goodies and some magazines for the troops to read and 
odds and ends, socks, and you know, so maybe some funny T-shirts. And then very often, a lot of times, we would get cards. People would write us these little notes. The American people were very generous in supporting the troops in the forward areas, as is evidenced by the enormous volume of care packages that we received. And one of the things that I always did is I tried to keep track of it, so I wrote them all a thank you to let them know that their package was received and the troops really appreciated it. And sometimes it was quite helpful because these were little knickknacks and goodies that they, they might not be able to get, especially in the outlying regions. And then also sometimes we would share them with the local children or something like that. So nothing went to waste. It was all very, very good. So we had one of our soldiers was killed in action. And one of the tough things to do is the fellow soldiers have to pack up all of his things and ship them home. So most guys have just a little tiny space that they live in. It's a little cot and, you know, a little wall locker with some odds and ends in it. So this uh, one guy had been killed and he they're packing up a lot of his stuff. And on the wall, the only thing that he had taped to the wall was a letter from a Girl Scout. And it said, you know, thank you, soldier, for serving your country, something like that, very touching. But the Girl Scouts had sent a lot of cookies over. So there was no shortage of Girl Scout cookies in the forward areas. And so when I wrote the letter of thank you to this Girl Scout troop that had so generously sent us all these cookies, I shared that with them and said, you know, for whatever who it was, the little girl that wrote that note, I reminded her that you never know that some small act of kindness may be among the last that somebody experiences in this world. And for whatever reason, that little note from the little girl touched his heart, and so he taped it on his wall next to his bunk. And sure enough, there was a couple boxes of the Girl Scout cookies underneath his bunk as well. But So they did package that up, and they, they sent it home with these things for his family. You know, a lot of these guys were not married, and so that was just kind of touching because he probably didn't have wife and children, so that had an added sentimental effect on him. But still, just a touching story about packing up guys' stuff when they are killed in action and shipping it home to the family members. Wow. I actually started tearing up. Yeah. I, I, in fact, that's, to be honest with you, sometimes there are other stories I can tell, but I, I get all choked. I, they're too, too emotional. My dad rarely spoke about his experiences in Vietnam. He was a scoutmaster. I was in the Boy Scouts at the time. And there were a few times when he shared a few stories, but after that, he never really told much. I often wondered about that, and I've come to the conclusion that some of the stories are so hard to tell because they choke you up. So a lot of guys just don't want to get emotional, so they just don't tell the story because it, it's too painful to recall. And I think we all have what we call compressed grief. I think it's probably something I've had to contend with over the years. Somebody asked me to explain it to them one time. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, in a forward area where there's a lot of action, the losses and the wounded are pretty steady. And you don't experience that anywhere else in life. A parallel would be like you're in college and you get word that your father died of a heart attack. Then two days later, you get word that your mother burned to death in a car accident. Then the following week, you find out your uncle was in a training, some kind of accident, and he had to have his leg amputated. Then four days after that, your younger sister dies of cancer suddenly. That just doesn't happen. Tragedy on tragedy. tragedy after tragedy. It doesn't occur in any other walk of life. But in the combat zone, that goes on almost for a whole year. 
it can be quite numbing, but at the same time, it takes its toll. You probably experienced more grief in almost five years of combat than most people would experience in 10 or 15 lifetimes. Our guest today has been Father Eric Albertson from McDill, chaplain at McDill. And this is How We See It. Thanks for listening to today's program. This presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you. If you'd like a copy of today's program, make comments or suggestions, and to help us keep this important programming on the air, visit myspiritfm.com slash howwesee it.